Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Land Party Lawyers podcast, the podcast intended for anyone interested in the e-gaming and esports industry. My name is Stephen Blickensdurfer, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Brown. Through debate, discussion, and interviews, we tackle issues at the intersection of video games, law, and business. Remember, nothing we say on the podcast is legal advice. So today, we are going to talk about an issue that's near and dear to the video game industry, intellectual property. We're talking about what is intellectual property, how to protect it, and lawsuits involving IP in the video game space. We're going to talk about these issues with a special guest, Gail Podolsky, who is a seasoned IP lawyer and chair of the Carlton Fields Technology Group in our Atlanta office. But before we get to the interview, Nick, why don't you start us off by explaining what do we mean when we talk about intellectual property? So IP kind of falls into three big buckets for the purpose of our conversation today. Uh, Copyrights, trademarks, and patents. I'm putting on my law professor hat here. Uh, Copyrights really are designed to protect tangible expression, and it kind of addresses the difference between uh, what what is expression and what is ideas. And so your, your essays might have copyright, uh, a recording of music might have copyright, or a video recording, perhaps, of somebody playing a video game. Uh, trademarks, instead, are, are more associated with the idea of branding. Uh, trademarks are a big deal for content creators. Um, they want, understandably, to have a, a brand or a mark that lives out in the world and that belongs to them and that doesn't get misappropriated by other people uh, maybe operating under that name or using it for their benefit. Uh, and the third one is patents, which kind of uh, they exist to protect uh, useful inventions. Um, and for our purposes today, uh, patents do extend to protecting software and lines of code, uh, which are you know, generally useful inventions. I'm thinking of the, the guy, the caveman who's chiseling the wheel Right, I know we've all seen that TV commercial. Those are patents, right? One eight hundred invent this. Well, I don't I think. think I don't think the caveman had patent protection. Well, the but. the caveman picture, I think, and that that would be a copyrighted work, right? The the trademark Presumably. would be like it's fixed and original. Yeah, and then the trademark would be you know one eight hundred call me to patent this, whatever the slogan would be, and then they, I don't think they, that's going to take off. But then they they protect patents. Interesting, huh? Has all of it wrapped in one little example right there. Anyway, protecting, I, <laughs> protecting IP is, is a huge part of gaming. Um, it affects everything from the, the games themselves to the people who are playing it. So uh, why is intellectual property a big deal for the video game industry and content creators generally? Well, the failure to protect it can create legal exposure. It's like one of the most obvious areas where video games and the law collide in big ways and so because naturally if you're spending time and effort and resources and thought and hard work to create a product you want there to be some kind of protection for that right so that someone else can't just run off and take your completed work without having done any of the work themselves claim it's theirs and get the benefit that should have gone to you exactly so i'll give you an example i've worked very hard on this dance move I've been practicing in my closet for months, okay? And I, I heard that about you. <laughs> and I unveiled it at a, at a dance competition, at, you know, at my at my local I don't know dance competition uh, scenery, and I found myself playing a game, and lo and behold, the dance move is in that game. It's one of the emotes. It's one of the the character moves when you know. For those that don't know, you could, in today's games, many of the games, you could get or buy or 
obtain somehow uh, different moves for your character. It kind of gives them personality where you would do dance moves uh, at the end of the game or maybe when you're waiting, you hit a button and all of a sudden your character starts to dance. And so... Uh, or to trash talk after you... Right. There's audio, there's you know different things, but the dancing in particular... And as it relates to one of the more popular games out there, Fortnite, uh, included some iconic dance moves. I can't say included my dance move, Nick, in, in my example, but include things like the floss, um, you know, arguably included some other dance moves, um, including, was it, Rapper 2 Millie's uh, Swipe It. Um, it included one of the moves that I liked, which is uh, the Scrubs Dance which was really cool. Right. Uh, the Carlton, another good one. And and there was so there was a lawsuit about this recently, right? Uh, Epic was sued by or a, a few lawsuits uh, bought by individuals that claimed to have the rights in those dance moves and claimed that Fortnite was uh, you know violating their copyright by using them and, and selling them for money. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting the way it turned out. Uh, there was a Supreme Court of the United States decision that actually said that um, in order to bring the copyright claim on the dance that the the uh, plaintiff the the party bringing the claim had to actually own uh, the pat or I'm sorry the the copyright to the dance first and so the lawsuits were dismissed but we may see the lawsuits refiled if and when the plaintiffs are able to receive protected copyrights on the dances from the U.S. Copyright Office. All right, so we're going to talk to Gail in a little bit about whether or not you could copyright a dance move because I think that there's the whole debate is whether you can even do that. Uh, but and Steve is very, very interested. In this I am question. because I'm. I just feel like that my dance move that I never announced, but if you could see me, you could see me dance it. Um, How convenient! Is going to be found in a game sometime because it's just too good. And so the next example we have is uh, actually, this one's fun. This is Booker T, the wrestler from Days of Yore. He was in the WCW with the, the New World Order, Sting, and, and Hulk Hogan when he was wearing the black and white. Um, he actually had a character in the 90s um, as a pro wrestler, and he also created a comic book based on that character in 2015 called G.I. Bro. And so the... He sued Activision, Blizzard Activision, for its game Black Ops 4, in particular for you know, allegedly adopting his character and creating this one in the game called David Prophet Wilkes. Do they look the same? I didn't it, watch wrestling. so Right. So, yeah, if you looked at a picture of Booker T's character, you looked at this guy in the game or you played this game, you would see a, a, you know, a resemblance. Um, the characters aren't the same, but... The, the question is, could you be confused about it? Could a consumer be confused that instead of playing Profit, they're actually playing G.I. Bro in, 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 in Activision's game? Which is interesting given the context that G.I. Bro seems pretty clearly to be based off of G.I. Joe, right? A, a different protected intellectual property. The law doesn't appreciate ironies, Nick. So <laughs> it's completely gone over their head. Bird law in this country is just not governed by reason. No, exactly. Um, so there's also uh, <laughs> trademark issues that are presented, you know, with respect to games. And we're just going to touch on a couple of them. Uh, the big recent news is actually earlier this week, uh, the band, or more accurately, the holding company that owns the band, Iron Maiden, uh, epic, you know, legendary metal band, uh, filed a $2 million trademark lawsuit over a video game stated to come out later this year called Ion Maiden. That's really similar. Uh, well, it's it's one letter different, but... Um, We've said in the past podcasts, letters make the difference, Nick. 
Just one or two they letters. <laughs> they, they, sometimes they can. That's true. Uh, the complaint alleges that the makers of Ion Maiden uh, misappropriated the Iron Maiden trademark, and it resulted in customer confusion. So that people probably are, you know, under the mistaken belief that this is um, licensed or produced somehow by Iron Maiden. They also allege that uh, the name and the merchandise that Ion Maiden uses is graphically similar to Iron Maiden, and in particular their Eddie character. Um, they seek over $2 million in statutory damages, but they also demand that the company cancel the registration of the domain for the game or actually transfer and give it over to the band Iron Maiden. I, we're going to ask Gail this in a second, but I just imagine this, that it's shocking to us in terms of you know not always working with IP litigation, you know perhaps, but for someone that lives in the IP world all the time, this is probably not a shocking thing. Uh, but it is pretty incredible. You know, stop doing this and then give it to me, in a sense. Right. And so the game is supposed to come out later this year. The lawsuit was only just filed, so we're going to have to watch to see what happens there. But it's pretty interesting dispute nonetheless. The other interesting example we wanted to bring to your attention uh, involves uh, Rockstar's game Red Dead Redemption 2, which came out last year, I think October of 2018. Um, it takes place, uh, I think, at the late 1800s in, in America, and it involves, as characters, uh, these Pinkerton agents who are you know, involved in the storyline. Um, and after the game came out... They're like bounty hunters, right? Yeah, they're, they're in the game, they're treated kind of like investigators, bounty hunters. It's not entirely clear, but they're kind of antagonists to uh, the main characters uh, that you get to play. Who are antagonists themselves. R maybe. I don't know, because haven't, they haven't ported it to the PC yet, Nick, I so I haven't... Yet. I guess it depends on you know, your perspective. I haven't, I haven't played all these exclusives yet, because I'm just you know, sticking with my principles. Uh, well, you're missing out. It's a lot of fun. Anyways, uh, so the Pinkerton Agency turns out is a real agency that existed back then and exists now. It's like a 150-something-year-old entity, from what I understand. And they sent Rockstar and Take-Two, the, the creators of the game, a cease and desist letter. And when, when Rockstar got that, Rockstar and Take-Two filed a lawsuit, a, a, a declaratory action, claiming that the way that their game portrayed the Pinkerton name was actually fair use, despite some of the negative characterizations. Um, we will, unfortunately, never know how that suit comes out because uh, it, it was ultimately dropped in April of 2019, but it raises interesting questions uh, about what, you know, in a game that's semi-historically accurate, uh, what type of representations are, are protected with respect to, you know, competing trademarks. That's interesting. You know, there's also IP rights uh, to the games themselves. As you're the developing the game and you're creating, sometimes they call it, like Blizzard recently announced, we're creating new IP, which is just another way of saying we got this other new game out that's unrelated to an older game um, that we're working on. So these large game publishers, such as Blizzard, uh, like I just mentioned, they own these rights to these games and around the leagues, uh, uh, which form around them. So uh, Overwatch is a, is a great example, where the person who they're, who's basically giving the license to play or, or to the teams to organize these teams and create these, these business entities around the games, uh, they have to you know, buy the licenses from Activision Blizzard. So uh, we're increasingly seeing the monetization of those rights. That's really what, what you see in the in this recent boom in investment into esports, how much does it cost to buy an esports team like that? Yeah, so in 2017, the price was 20 million dollars uh, to buy oh uh, like an Overwatch team, and it doubled in 2018. So 
you know, Blizzard Activision is is making some some good money from selling the rights in these particular games, and so you can imagine you're going to have values like that going forward. Maybe when Rocket League starts to form into something with now having gone over to Epic, uh, maybe you'll see something like this going for one of the Rocket League teams. It also comes up when they want to put on esports events, right? Because if you want to put on an event, like a big competition for Rocket League or Fortnite or whatever, you need to get the rights to do that from the the owners of that IP. Yes, Nick, you're right. Actually, uh, Epic recently sued organizers of an unofficial Fortnite event in Norwich. So you... you you know, run it at your own risk. But uh, these game publishers are going to enforce their rights to this IP, uh, and that's something to consider when you're putting on events, uh, particularly events you want them to be official, uh, so that you don't run into those problems. So another way that uh, another way that this works in esports, which is is pretty fascinating, is more in the traditional sense, where where you got sport games, and that's where the 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 script is kind of flipped. So you have uh, take a league like the NFL licensing their IP um, to Electronic Arts for Madden, for instance. The annual Madden football franchise. Right, so, but you, so you can see the, the rights basically gen- originating from the National Football League and then tr- you know, trickling down from there. So it's just another way of who's, where's the source of the, of the intellectual property is really the starting point. And then from there you can kind of figure out, all right, well, you know, if you have to get rights to do something with respect to that IP... Who would you be going and asking those those questions and getting that permission? Um, and media rights come into play too, right? Yeah. Uh, just displaying the content, having distribution deals, any kind of licensing issues for marketing or, or you know merchandise or things. I, I think that media rights is going to be the next big thing, and, I, and I'm not alone in my in my estimation there because take Twitch, which just recently announced they're exploring plans to do a pay-per-view style viewing of certain competitions. Um, if that succeeds... Subscriber I'm, only. Right. Think about it. Right now, everything's free. You go on any mixer, you go on Twitch, whatever you're using, you can access and watch any competition or event. Right. You can pay extra to get additional features like, you know, emotes and chat privileges and things. Right. But the, the basic functionality is, is uh, like, you know, just standard... Uh, ban TV. Right. So uh, the basically media rights boils down to the right to display content. And at some point, we're, you can expect that companies are going to monetize that as people will, you know, would pay to see a certain event. And, and Goldman Sachs, relying on their report from a couple of months ago, they expect that figure to climb. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So, so currently in this Goldman Sachs report, media rights account for 14% of revenue. They expect that uh, figure to climb up to 40% by 2022. So That's almost triple. That's huge. So the last thing, Nick, uh, I think we should go into is patents real quick because, you know, in this industry, you don't have to go into details, but esports and video games, I think the the potential for patent protection, or the, the, the need for patent protection is real. Yeah. And the potential for using new and innovative technology is unlike almost any other industry. Yeah, and, you know, with... with- um, emerging industries within the tech industry, right? You're, you're, it's just gonna, you're gonna see more and more new technology as people come up with modern solutions in these uh, technologically advanced areas with a bunch of technologically savvy users. 
Um, we're not going to go into great deal about this in the podcast today, but we just want to note that we're seeing a bunch of pa significant patents be applied for and granted with respect to esports and gaming in general. Um, you know, from things you might expect like uh, video data management, like for for game streams, like how they get the 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 video from you know the competitor's computer all the way to your Twitch screen or perhaps your mobile phone. Um, there's also cross-platform, uh, you know, patent opportunities involving, you know, what, what if you want to hold a tournament and you got 10 people playing on Xbox and 10 people playing on PlayStation and they're really comfortable with their own, you know, little ecosystem, but you want to be able to play them together, it takes a technological solution to actually have a fair competition. Esports event platforms are another example, and even uh, something that surprised me, which was fairness algorithms. Uh, algorithms designed to make sure that the games are being played fairly, uh, which would really impress me, uh, which is probably why they got a patent for it. Isn't that like the Punk Buster? It kind of reminds me of that, the old school, you know, take the cheaters offline kind of. I do, and I remember I had more, I was never a cheater, but I had more trouble with that than any of the actual software. They always seemed to think that I was cheating. Mm -hmm. I assume because, you know, I was just doing such a good job. I, I, I assume they were right. So <laughs> I think it's time to bring Gail in here and, and to talk to her a little bit about some of these things. Um, so Gail, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate your time and, and for kind of cracking an egg of knowledge on this situation here. So, so... First, first, let's do a little uh, warm-up question. Why don't you tell us uh, whether you're a console or PC player and the last game you've invested any significant time in? Well, first of all, I want to thank you again for bringing me on. Uh, and for two non-IP lawyers, uh, you guys did a great job at explaining IP and kind of the issues <laughs> that are going on in the gaming industry. Hey. Uh, as for me personally, uh, I'm a console player. Um, and, you know, I think it comes back to, and I'm going to date myself here, uh, playing with <laughs> the Commodore and there uh, Atari, right. followed by Nintendo. I uh, grew up, grew up playing Tecmo Bowl. So now I've moved on and matured. So you know, Madden is certainly one of my favorite go-to's. Um, but if it's not going to be a sports game, then my heart will always be with Resident Evil. Nice, <laughs> very nice. nice. They they had a recent remake come out. Uh, I never really got into the Resident Evil series, but. I know the fans of it were really happy with the recent one. You may want to check that out. I was always too scared. It's too scary for me. Well, if, I, if you ever find me at a Dave & Buster's, you're going to know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gail, so maybe a good place to start would be to kind of talk about some of your feedback on some of these cool cases we were talking about earlier. Um, and I'll just the first one I know is near and dear to Steve's heart, which is the Fortnite uh, dance copyright case. Do, I mean, do you think that that, is I mean a reasonable way for that to turn out? Do they should they have to get the copyright before they can bring the suit? And uh, you know what do, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, uh, unfortunately, Steve, I have to say that your secret super fantastic dance moves are probably not protectable. Uh -huh. um, but I would like to see them someday. Uh, in terms of be careful what you wish. <laughs> yeah, it's like the it's like the Napoleon dance. So excellent Napoleon dynamite dance. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the Supreme Court and the decision that basically says you have to register your copyright before you can go into court, I think that's the right decision. Um, they're similar to patents. You have to have an issued patent before you can sue for patent infringement. Someone uh, shouldn't be able to just go into court claiming copyright infringement without having the registration. Uh, but even if uh, we take that uh, prerequisite out, 
you know, looking at the 50,000 foot level, do they actually have copyright protection in these dance moves? And I think at the end of the day, um, it's going to be difficult. You know, since they filed suit, uh, the copyright office, the, the United States Copyright Office actually rejected the applications. So what, what if what Ouch. if my move is I've, my dance move is really technical. I mean, <laughs> I'd be hard pressed to see you guys be able to copy my moves. It, does that increase the chances that I'll get some copyright protection? So the the technical aspects to your dance is typically not what is looked at it's mostly the length so if you for example an entire ballet it's also really long my dance move is like <laughs> minutes Steve's move clocks in about 90 minutes how am i well, doing now we're getting more into a performance right so have okay. you publicly performed it now we're it getting been somewhere recorded. all right and if you've met those things and again it's your original creation you didn't um take it from other people uh and you actually performed it in front of people then it's a closer call but you know what we're dealing with here for example in the carlton dance it's a very short um move and um you know but it's fierce yeah i do love the carlton dance i'm not gonna lie i was a fresh prince of bel-air fan (laughs) born in west philadelphia (laughs) Uh, which is funny i'm not sure a lot of the current Fortnite demographic would know specifically the character that 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 dance derives from but they can floss up and down nick and (laughs) i've tried it my wife hates it when i try it but you know that is what it is. So, uh, or, so let's move on to a different lawsuit, if I may. Um, the GI Bro lawsuit. So again, um, this is the you know African American character in the game with the combat gear, um, kind of looking like um, another artist's work, putting away his name, GI Bro. Uh, but what do you think of that one? Well, first I want to start off with I'm really disappointed you didn't mention Ric Flair in your list of wrestlers. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I was actually on a plane recently where he was sitting in first class and I kind of geeked out. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in terms of the lawsuit, I think uh, he's going to have a hard time. Um, the idea of uh, someone dressed up in military garb carrying a gun, that is not really an original work of authorship. Uh, and, you know, there's going to be a, a really strong First Amendment uh, defense there that basically says, you know, y- you have the, some artistic uh, freedoms, and how else can you uh, articulate or, or show uh, someone in the military without having them in military garb carrying a gun? So, you know, one thing that strikes me a little bit different about this from the Fortnite one is, you know, a dance is a dance. Does does this guy have a better claim by virtue of the fact that he had a comic book, like an actual fixed piece of media containing his character that he's claiming is copyright? Does he have a better position than someone who just says, you know, those moves are mine? If there was more unique criteria to his character, I think the fact that he would have a comic book would certainly help. Uh, but again, we're talking about a real general character, similar to how they don't protect magicians or knights in, in video games. Um, I mean, could you imagine uh, if someone that's owned... Steve's other side hustle down the drain, too. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> shooting them down one by one. So, yeah, I, I have to say, um, I understand he's probably angry about this, but I, I'm not sure that uh, his claim is, at the end of the day, is a very strong one. So is that, you mentioned the defense there, is that like a fair use defense? And what would that look like? 
So the First Amendment defense is slightly different than the fair use defense. Uh, the First Amendment defense is basically there's artistic relevance to the underlying work and you and you're not misleading anyone. So the, the video game is not saying or referring to the wrestler. Um, and if the, if the users of the game do not believe that this is the wrestler, they don't, there's not what we call instances of confusion, then uh, it's going to be really hard to convince a, a court or a jury that um, th- there's some si- sort of infringement. Um, right. So maybe the analysis would change if uh, this character in the comic book had a distinct move that this guy in the video game also, also did. Maybe that would change things up. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to give Booker T a chance here. You're, you're shooting them all down. <laughs> all right, let, let's move on to Iron Maiden. Uh, Eddie, great, great band, but did they did they make the right move here? Absolutely. And by the way, there there are no opinions here. We know that we're not you know opining as to anything. We're just kind of you know talking about these cases. But yeah. So what did you think of this one? Uh, so I, as a brand owner, that is the right strategic um, move to make. You know, they have uh, Iron Maiden has trademark registrations uh, that cover. Ion, Ion's um, goods and services that they are currently doing. The names are visually similar. Uh, I think someone could be confused. I, I believe in the pleadings, they are indicated that there were already instances of actual con- consumer confusion where they were af- um, affiliating or associating the game and Ion with Iron Maiden. And that's what trademark law Can't is all about. Can't imagine why. <laughs> what, you know, what's interesting here to me, um, you know, one piece among all the other parts of the case is Iron Maiden actually had a video game previously. It was called Legacy of the Beast. So that makes it a little bit easier for them to argue that there's possible confusion because it's not like a completely new space or a completely new expression of the band, right? Because they actually, having made a video game, someone might think that this, you know, is just another one. Absolutely. What kind of uh, tips would you give? And I know that we're going to do our takeaways later, but like if you were going to create a game, how close would you get to something like this? Where's the line, I guess, where you've got this general, you know, I don't know. I, I guess what would be your, you know, rule of thumb when it comes to uh, building IP around something that might touch other IP? Like run for the for the hills? Like you want to stay as far away as it is possible or... Or do you have any takeaways? Is it just too gray? I don't know. So I'm going to give you the typical lawyer uh, advice that I'm sure you have given before is it depends. Uh, it, it depends on what we're talking about here. Is it trademark law, copyrights, or patents that are being implicated? You know, um, so that's one thing that we look at. You know, most of what we've been talking about today is either in the copyright and the trademark context. Um, with trademark, you know, you don't want to pick a name, a domain, uh, or, um, you know, characters that are similar to something that's already out there, especially something that's famous, especially like Iron Maiden. Right. Um, Maybe don't take a 40-year brand and change one letter. <laughs> that's good advice, Nick. <laughs> good takeaway for this one. We're not taking sides. <laughs> I was just using that as a hypothetical. Total hypothetical. What about if you're approached by a client who has been around you know, the landscape for 140 years, and they're saying, listen, I found my, my grand, great-great-great-grandfather's company's name referenced in this game. And he was dancing. And he was dancing the floss in the, in the hills of Montana. I don't know where Red Dead is because, again, until they pl- poured it to PC, I won't know. But 
Uh, the Red Dead trademark lawsuit, how does that look? So you're combining all of the cases we discussed into one. This sounds like a law school exam. Yes or no, Gail? Did, did the yes. helicopter explode too uh, and fall on my grandmother? Uh, so, you know, with the Pinkerton case, it's um, I can see why the lawsuit went the way it did in the sense that um, there was a declaratory judgment action filed um, and that the Pinkerton was upset. They sent the cease and desist letter. And in response, um, the folks uh, at, at the gaming company, they filed a declaratory judgment action basically saying, court, please declare our rights that we are not infringing. And so they the suit had... was brought by the people claimed to have done the wrong, instead Correct. of the typical way where someone sues and the defendant is the one uh, alleged alleged to have done the wrongdoing. Yeah, it's a nice little nuance in in the IP world um, that you can do that. Uh, once someone sends a cease and desist letter, there that creates the buzzwords are actual case or controversy, and once that happens, uh, then someone can file. There's a statute that allows you to go into court first, so you know you could pick where you want to sue and claim and ask the court to make the decision. Uh, and, and in this case, I think that um, Pinkerton has has a tough or had a tough road to hoe, and, and maybe that's why the case resolved itself. Uh, and, and the reason for it, you know, I mentioned before the the um, First Amendment defense. There, that's a really great defense for uh, to attack Pinkerton's claim of infringement. I mean, here they're trying to be historically accurate. And how else can you be historically accurate but to refer to you know the the actual company um, that was uh, going out and catching the bad guys. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're presenting it as historically accurate and you make them seem, you know, very um, distasteful or have them doing, you know, inappropriate acts that might lead, you know, to type of a defamation claim, where's the line on that? You know, can, can you can you at the same time, you know, take protection in the fact that you're saying, oh, well, it's historically accurate. We weren't going to make up a new entity. And, but then at the same time, you know, also say, oh, well, it's just fiction, right? They didn't really do all this bad stuff. They, you know, that's just part of our story. This is your second question on the law school exam, Gail. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think in that case, it's going to be a very fact-intensive inquiry into, you know, what is really, uh, quote-unquote, defamatory, if it even is defamatory. You know, I would argue that it's lessening or devaluing the Pinkerton brand, um, which would potentially rise to what's called a trademark dilution claim. So their trademark becomes um, less, uh, it's devalued um, because, you know, arguably they're, they're potentially making fun of Pinkerton. Uh, on the other side, the other, uh, you know, flip the coin, the, the argument and response is, well, it's parody. Parody. And, you know, that gets into the whole, you know, two live crew uh, analysis on, you know, what is a parody? Is there a social commentary aspect to it? Um, and, you know, is it clearly poking fun? Uh, is it a crit social critique? Uh, so that would all need to be, you know, fleshed out in the litigation, um, which, you know, again, the case was dismissed. So unfortunately, we don't get to see how how the court uh, would decide that, but um, it's certainly an in, it was an interesting set of facts, uh, and I would have liked to have seen how how it would have ended up. So I want to switch gears real quick uh, to to talk about some hot button topics in IP and video games today, and I'm really looking at 
like the Marshmallow concert that, for those that don't know, Marshmallow is you know, a rising star in the EDM, the electronic dance music arena. And he had a concert earlier this year in Fortnite that was attended by 10 million 10 million spectators, which is yeah, the... concert was completely contained and held and presented within the game of Fortnite. Right. It, it, it was, to our knowledge, it's the first time something like this has ever happened, certainly not to this scale. It was the biggest event online, and it was three times... I love this stat. It was three times bigger than the than the most the best well-attended event concert in the world. Um, so thinking i mean to me that just screams like a bunch of new ip issues and new thought fact patterns that we haven't conceived of before but i would imagine you know maybe it's simpler maybe i'm overthinking it because if you were if you were marshmallow before you started that concert i'd imagine there'd be a contract in place where you'd say okay this this you know music that i'm about to play these are the rights to it that you may or may not have uh to to play it and then, you know, if we do a live, I can imagine like a live from Fortnite CD, you know, that Marshmallow has of, the, of what he played. I don't know. Do you have like digital crowds screaming in the background? I, it's, it's kind of crazy, but I imagine stuff like that's going to happen uh, where IP is going to create with an IP. And there's going to be so many stakeholders to that IP that are, you got to have to have a contract, right, Gail, to, to set out the rules with respect to who can do what with it. Well, if I was Marshmallow's counsel, I, I would certainly uh, tell him that, yes, uh, it does make sense, and I highly recommend that you have a contract. But another interesting issue to this is, you know, you have so many viewers that are experiencing Marshmallow's music that he would have never had except for him being on Fortnite is, who should be paying for whose services? You know, should Fortnite be paying for Marshmallow? Or in turn, you know, I could argue that Marshmallow should be paying Fortnite for the exposure. Who are you representing here, Gail? <laughs> That's a great point. I mean, it's mutually beneficial, right? And the question is, who's getting more out of it? And I and I imagine both sides would say you are. I would imagine, you know, an art Fortnite could get any artist it probably wanted after this, uh, and people would be I'll lining know, up the door. In that regard, uh, the famous, you know, well well known band Weezer released an album in Fortnite uh, around the same time. I think it was a little after the Marshmallow concert, but I could be wrong about that. But they actually, they had a whole island in the game dedicated to their new album that they released for free, at least at the time, through jukeboxes in the game. And I understand that was pretty well uh, attended too. And so that, that supports what you were just saying, Gail. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, and then think you take it another step further, and you know you have Coachella where there's you know they're doing live feeds with drones, and now you have artists that are performing live in in video games like Fortnite. You know what are, what is going to be the future of concerts? Right. You know, are people really going to go to venues and spend all this money, or are they just going to turn on their console? You can't mosh on a PlayStation, though. That's I'll true. Throw that out there. That's true. I feel like you could in your living room. <laughs> I like your attitude, Gail. That's gonna start looking like my dance, unfortunately. So, <laughs> so you can't you can't do that. Uh, be careful. Yeah, be careful. I'm gonna I'm gonna t- I'll I'm gonna, show you my mosh. I'm gonna send a takedown request. Uh, I want to switch before we leave Fortnite altogether. I wanted to mention things that we're seeing in games, and and uh, from what I understand, to be pretty common uh, fan content policies. So when you sign up to create an account to go in and play Fortnite, you have to agree to certain things, their terms of service, privacy policy, and a fan content policy, uh, among other things. And, and that policy will say, you know, we appreciate all of our, you know, 
excited fans that want to, you know, make a Fortnite t-shirt or uh, banners uh, or digital, you know, IP, but you can't monetize it. You can't commercialize it. Uh, I just wanted to get your take on, on stuff like that. Is that something common to, or maybe unique to video games or are they in other industries as well? Yeah, we've actually been seeing this for a really long time. Um, you know, w with the birth of the internet and, no, I'm really dating myself. Um, <laughs> we have uh, terms of use policies and you have folks that have message boards, you have contests that are conducted solely online where people are putting up videos or, you know, they're making t-shirts and the contest rules or even the um, terms of use of the website will say, we own everything you send to us. Uh, you have to abide by all of these rules. You can't bully people. You can't put up defamatory conduct. Um, and you know, even if uh, the court finds that we didn't own this stuff, that you didn't give it to us, then we have a assignment in, per in perpetuity to use it however we want. We don't have to pay you a dime. Uh, so you're basically, anytime you give up something, either through the game or online, you are, for the most part, generally speaking, if they're drafted properly, uh, are, are assigning and giving away all of your rights to whatever you've posted or right. co content you've created. So it's a little scary for the you know gamer uh, yeah. and something and certainly means, to be aware of. That means that Steve can't sell all of his uh, finely crafted Battletoads crafts that he has been putting together over the last 20 years cats out the bag now nick thanks appreciate it and and what's what's also neat about fortnite's fan policy is they they have a disclaimer in there it says if you send uh us your content we will destroy it <laughs> so don't bother <laughs> i love that so but i mean like where's the line uh gail with if i wanted to take uh the little llama in fortnite and create an art out of it right like i wanted to paint something is that considered fan fan content? What if I what if I'm an artist and I actually you know I have people who pay for my art? Is this can I do that? Can I paint the llama in abstract art, expressionist painting? So the artist would would say that this is what's called a derivative use. So you are creating new copyrighted content by adding your original authorship to it, uh, so that you wouldn't be infringing. Um, however, Fortnite uh, and the owners of that content uh, may take a different approach, especially with these um, fan content rules. Uh, you know, they could construe, uh, you know, the fan content rules are, are arguably a binding enforceable contract. So as, you know, being allowed to play the game, you are agreeing to these terms. And so if the terms prevent you from commercializing anything with the game and selling it, then, you know, you, you might um, have some liability there. Geez, Gail, you know, Nick and I are very fortunate that you're part of the team because not very many people have yes. the resource to be able to ask you these challenging questions. I don't know how many types of law school exam questions we've asked you today, but I tried to... I tried to stump you <laughs> uh, more I than once. Can you paint the llama? Was gonna do it, right? But, uh, it was my, it was my, you know, to that last ditch effort. <laughs> but you know, for those that don't have Gail on speed dial, um, what are some of the takeaways or or things, resources that are available for? I don't know. There's many players involved. You have the game developers. You have the content creators, who I think are maybe the most vulnerable because. They might not know where the lines are, and they don't want to get a takedown request on YouTube or, or whatever else they're putting their content. So do you have any, any tips 
as, as we wrap up? Yeah, I, I do have a few. So um, first, a little shameless uh, plug for our firm. Uh, we do have some great free content that you know would be uh, very beneficial, I think, for both uh, gamers as well as um, content creators, uh, developers. We have a, a website. It's called launchtothrive.com, uh, and it provides free legal resources. Uh, you can get an IP assignment, uh, trademark assignment, a model release. So if you're, um, you know, using uh, people's images or photographs, um, as well as some other, you know, basic incorporation documents. So if you're going to start a company or a joint venture uh, with some developers and content creators, and so that's a really good reference. Also, I, I have to say the the. U.S. government does a really good job at explaining some of these issues that we've talked about today. So for copyright, uh, the, the website's copyright.gov. And then for trademark and patent, it's USPTO.com, and that stands for United States Patent and Trademark Office. So those are two free resources uh, that also provide some great content. Great. That's great. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our show for today, but we do want to take a moment and extend a sincere thank you to Gail Podolsky for coming yes. and helping us out here. Thank uh, you, Not Gail. only uh, are you sharing your time with us, but your very helpful expertise, um, even though it might end up now in more of Steve's dance maneuvers, but we will weather the storm over here. I'm dancing right now, Nick. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you viewers, listeners can connect with us uh, on social media, on Instagram, or through our webpage, lampirelawyers.com. Be sure to check out other episodes from season one of the podcast. And um, unless you have anything else, Nick, I think we're done here. That's all I got. Game on. Game on. You've been listening to the Land Party Lawyers podcast series with Steve Blickensturfer and Nick Brown. To learn more about our e-gaming and esports practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.